All right, uh, Tamara, tell me um, what is kind of the most fun, maybe unusual thing that you've eaten? It could be short-term mission setting or it could be in a family setting. Um, so just give us a fun story about that. Um, we eat a lot of sockeye salmon. So um, we usually eat almost most parts of the sockeye salmon. So the eye, um, not the iris part, the white pipe behind the eye of the fish. Um, my mom bakes it and then we eat that. And the meat behind the cheeks. And uh, the elders eat the cartilage behind the nose, but um, I don't like the texture of that. So we, we eat um, fish heads. All right. Well, that's excellent. I am a salmon fan, though I cannot admit to having eaten those parts of the salmon. Welcome to the Better Mission Trips podcast from Standards of Excellence and Short-Term Mission. I'm your host, Tori Ruark, and we believe that mission trips can and should be better. In fact, statistics suggest that maybe as many as 80% of short-term missionaries are going out under-trained and under-prepared. They're going out with the right heart, but they're not going out in the right way. In this podcast, we're going to discover together how to combine the right heart with the right way for God's glory. So we're here today with uh, Tamara Miller from uh, North American Indigenous Ministries. So uh, tell us a little bit about uh, yourself, where you live, and where you serve. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm a First Nations person that um, grew up here just north of Whistler on my home reserve, and I um, have been a believer in Jesus 25 years. I um, was brought to the Lord through missionaries that were uh, ministering here amongst my people. And um, I'm married, um, my husband of eight years, and we have a three-year-old daughter. I do um, ministry with name, um, more administration and recruitment, but mm -hmm. my husband and I are also doing field ministry here on my reserve. Excellent. And so tell us um, about your, your background, um, uh, what uh, people groups do you come from, and then tell us a little bit about how you became a believer. I, on my mom's side, I'm from the Litwat Nation, which is part of the like a larger dialect of people. Um, old categories would call us interior Salish. On my dad's side, I'm more from the coastal people, the Squamish Nation um, in North Vancouver. So I have a little bit of kind of, they're a little bit different in the priorities of the values of the culture. So I grew up mainly amongst my, my mom's people. Okay, so tell us a little bit about what was um, what was it like growing up? Uh, what you know, what what was it like in your family? Maybe idea of what were religious beliefs or or cultural values, and then and then maybe lead that into how you became a believer. Sure. Yeah. Um, I, a lot of our values is is are one of the most important values that we have is family and community and connection. So that relationship building. And uh, so a lot of time with my immediate family and then my extended family, um, a lot of time kind of out on the land, um, hunting, fishing, um, gathering, just um, living off of the land for sustenance and um, just a lot of time even just playing outdoors, riding horses, gardening, 
um, just um, valuing that living off of the land was one of the things I really appreciated about my childhood. Culturally, I really enjoy our like our drumming and our sing and the singing and those songs. Um, so the drum beat is like considered like our heartbeat, and your heart almost starts to beat um, to the drum beat when there's so a lot of people that are using the hand drums and singing songs, and it just feels like a way to connect with other people. And um, we have songs for all different things. Um, funny songs, um, but more of it would be not audible words that you'd understand, but there would be some that have just meaning um, to it, and there's there's dances that go along with it. But I I love the sound of the, the drum beat. I bet. And so tell us a little bit about how you became a believer. Yeah, I, um, I grew up in... Well, some aspects of my childhood were really quite rough or uh, in the sense and tough. Um, I ended up um, being quite an angry and resentful teenager. And um, my biological dad wasn't really in my life. And I started to, um, I remember a moment at, when I was 10 years old, I was just crying and crying and crying. And my brother came in the room and said, why are you crying? And I said, because dad said he was coming and he didn't come. And my brother said to me, well, why do you believe him anyways? He never, he never does what he says he's going to do. And so that was one of those moments where I remembered closing off my heart, um, and building a thick, a thicker barrier to people and to trust and to, and um, my, all my parents were, um, alcoholics. And so that brought a lot of chaos into the household so all those good times were often when they were they were sober um because addiction has a vicious cycle um, and it's it's really hard to, to break that cycle and so kind of a roller coaster ride there were times where life was good and stable but when they were drinking it was uh, unstable and chaotic and at times i was the adult in the house of my younger brothers and of my parents as well and so um when i was eight well 17 i was starting to face the reality of who i was going to become and i was trying to deal with that anger that would just surge up inside of me and um and i would try to stop it or stifle it and i, and I couldn't on my own and so that was starting to scare me um to think about where i'd be as an adult and in my grade 12 year, I changed schools and um, I had actually lived in the city. My mom had moved me away for grades 8 to 11 to a different high school for, um, for education. And so when I came home to live with my mom again, I um, went, into, went back to this small school and I walked into my biology 12 class and there was, there was a girl sitting at the front um, and she was not First Nations. And during that time period um, that I was in high school, there was a lot of segregation and, and racism. And so when I saw her sitting there, and I didn't even see her face, I just saw the back of her head, a thought popped into my mind. Um, and the thought was, I'm going to be her friend. And as I reflected on it years and years later, um, I realized it had to be something from God um, and so I pursued a friendship with her, and she um, she's 
she was one of the most passionate, loving um, Christian teenagers I've ever met. And she just, she loved on me. She talked to me about Jesus. Um, but mostly I remember the times that she, she would pray for me, the times that I was hurting or angry or sad. Or um, she, would, she would talk to me about Jesus, which I don't remember all those words, but I do remember the feeling of her praying for me and the feeling of her loving me. Um, and so I decided um, one Sunday to go to church with my uncle because I knew she would be there, my friend Bonnie. And so we were sitting there at the back of the church listening to the sermon. And I remember that I had kind of like tunnel vision. This pastor was saying something and I don't remember his words, but I do remember feeling like he must know what's going on in my heart. He must know what I was feeling and thinking and and I actually physically remember looking around at the other people in the church thinking they must know too that he's talking to me. Um, and so I left church and walked outside and kind of hit around the corner for a couple minutes trying to gather myself together, trying to figure out what was going on. And a week later, I went to a youth group event that the missionaries were putting on and um, Bonnie invited me to go. And so um the mary was the missionary from north carolina and i grew up knowing her and she always would talk like come and hug us i remember when my grandmother passed she came to the funeral and she just hugged me and she's like i'm so sorry sweetheart and she'd always call us precious and all these like and she just seemed sweet and i i always just thought it was fake because i didn't think anybody could be really that sweet um, and so that night around the campfire, she told her testimony and as hard as my testimony is, I mean, I'm not going into the graphic details of things I've seen and experienced, but it was hard. Her life was even harder. Mm. And I just sat there and I just sobbed. I pulled my hoodie over my head and I covered my face and I just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed because I realized that she couldn't be faking it that um, I'd tried to fake it and, and I couldn't. And so I, the thought that popped into my head was um, what she has is what I need or what you need. And um, Mary brought me inside and she talked with me and prayed with me and talked with me and prayed with me. And then eventually I accepted Jesus as my savior. She asked me, do you want to accept Jesus as your savior? And I said, yes. And so she told me, she's like, go tell Don, her husband. And so I went into the kitchen and I, I told Don and a couple others. And I was kind of wondering what the heck does this mean? It doesn't feel any different. Um, but that night uh, they drove me home probably about midnight. And um, in my, my culture, we, um, the spirits are more considered to be more active at night. And so mm -hmm. we often have all of our curtains shut really tightly. Um, and so before I even got to the end of the driveway, I knew that my parents, they'd been sober for about four months. I knew they were drinking again because the curtains were open. And so I went in um, and my stepdad was like a heart. He still is a uh, hard-working man he built our house he worked full-time um and he was he was passed out sleeping on the kitchen table and i i walked past him and i was was angry i was i was sad i was just disappointed 
And I went and I sat on my bed and um, God spoke to me in my head in a, in a voice, audible voice in my head. And he said to me, he's like, you are mine now, honor your parents. And I would learned some of the Ten Commandments as a kid, um, going to Catholic Sunday school kind of stuff. And, and so when that voice came into my head, um, my eyes went huge and I just went, was just trying to figure out what was happening. And I, I said out loud the words, okay. And, but what I was thinking was like, I don't quite know what that means. Um, but I stood up and I went and I helped my stepdad to bed um, and covered him with a blanket, took his shoes off, that kind of thing. And, and so for me, I just feel like, well, I know that um, when I prayed and accepted Jesus, that the Holy Spirit came mm-hmm. and that he was, he was speaking to me. And I so appreciate that God impacted me so largely with that one command, mm-hmm. that one direct command from him that I started a journey of walking with him which has been 25 years now. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think, you know, most of us are aware of kind of the the difficult history of um, First Nations peoples with, you know, Christian missionaries and even at least, you know, I'm in the United States and the United States government. Um, I imagine that the history of First Nations people in Canada with government and religion is also complicated. Is that, am I making a a correct assumption? Was it difficult in your culture and in your family when you uh, came to Christ or what was that like? Yeah, difficult is a good word. Um, Complicated is part of what me sorting through what what it means to be both First Nations and Christian. Um, and so, yeah, the history has left a legacy of distaste, distaste towards Christianity and the Bible and Jesus. I mean, I grew up hearing, I prefer to, some people will say Christ. I prefer to say Jesus because, um, my whole childhood, I just heard the word Christ as a swear word. And so, yeah, it was very anti-Christian, a lot of jokes about the Bible and churchgoers and Christians and uh, just mockery. And so when I became a Christian, it took me about a year to finally told my mom. And so when I finally was like, mom, I'm a Christian, she's like, I know. And it's just kind of funny because I'd been going to church for a whole year with like the missionaries before I finally told her. So um, just that my mom wasn't ever antagonistic towards me um, but I did have a fear of of what people Mm -hmm. thought Um, and and then the legacy of kind of fear uh, towards First Nations culture um, impacted how I how I work through what what parts or aspects of my culture I could be a part of as a Christian I think we should all be doing that working through what is was redeemable and what isn't but I think it was even more complicated being a First Nations person and that a lot of the church fears um, what my culture is and what the spirituality of my people is yeah that's but, that's well said that um, y- you know I, all of us should be actually probably more discerning of of our culture and how that impacts our um, 
our faith and following Jesus. And um, on the one hand, in kind of a historically Christian culture like the United States of America and probably Canada as well, it may seem like it's easier, but I wonder actually if it's it's harder because so much is more in disguise. I, I don't know if this is a question you can even answer if it's putting you on the spot, but can you tell us how, what did it look like to kind of, you said you wrestled with that kind of duality of being a first nations person and a believer in Jesus. And were those things at conflict or, um, you know, what did that look like when you came to kind of, um, bring those two things together? Yeah. Um, when I did my master's in Christian studies, I read about bicultural, um, becoming a bicultural person. And so that's, Part of my my journey is being First Nations in basically Western society as well. So being bicultural, just moving between those two cultures, but also bicultural in the sense of being First Nations and Christian, um, because this the worldviews are. I think when we look at the essence of the scriptures, the worldviews aren't all that different. Um, but when we look at the religion or the cultural practices of Christianity, there are conflicting worldviews and value systems. And so I had to go through a long journey of, of working this through. Um, and, and a lot of what I've come to is that it's, it comes down to my relationship with God. Um, ultimately, I, I, I want what I'm doing and I'm thinking and I'm saying to honor God and I, I seek him for his wisdom. And so sometimes things that I do may look like the same as other believe, um, non-believers, non-Christians um, on the outside, but I know that um, internally I am seeking him. Um, there was a ceremony where my my paternal grandmother was close to dying and she wanted all of her 16, 15 grandkids to have an ancestral name um, from her family. And we'd been talking about it probably like 15 years, but it finally came to the point where we had to do it. And um, there's aspects of the ceremony that I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know what I should participate in and do. And there was just so many things that I couldn't say no to as um, even though I believe differently, I, I chose to, to look through the lens of relationship to honor my grandmother and to honor my family um, and to be a part of what my family was doing together. And, um, and I told God, I said, I don't, know a lot of times God and I said all I want you to do is I'm like God you have to meet me here I, I need to do this and I need you to meet me and so when we entered into the ceremony um, and it was the mask ceremony um, I put my hand in in the mask hand the mask dancer's hand and instantly the word just popped into my head Jesus and so for a large portion of the beginning of the ceremony as I held the mask dancer's hand, all I just kept saying to the sound of the clamshells and the, that were banging together and the drums was Jesus. And it was right in tune with the, the drum beat. And I just, Jesus, Jesus, probably about a hundred times and tears were just streaming down my face. And I realized it's, it really can be so simple in the sense of we, we look at the majors. So we major on the majors and mm -hmm. it's Jesus. 
Um, and I know that God knew I wanted to honor him. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like, again, he spoke to me and he, and he showed me who he was. Yeah, that's amazing. Thanks so much for sharing your testimony and, and just kind of the, some of those, um, inner, uh, struggles that, that you've had to wrestle through. Uh, really you're like the perfect person to talk to about this idea of partnership, um, you know, uh, in the first nations, uh, ministry area. Um, so, you know, and I think part of what you do is, is some, uh, internships, but what does, um, it take for, uh, non first nations people to partner with a first nations ministry like yours? Um, yeah, what, what does that look like? What does it take to be a partner? Yeah, um, I think knowledge of the history, um, and I do some cross-cultural training and some historical training, but I think people should start to investigate the history on their own and learn what, um, what has happened on the land that they are living on and benefiting from a, a tragic history. So the first step is to increase your knowledge. And and my hope is always that as you increase your knowledge and your understanding that compassion will come forward for what my people are facing even today, what we're living in. Um, And then as far as reaching out in ministry to my people, um, I ask churches to think about committing um, to a longer term relationship with the community to invest in the community not just a quick one-time short-term trip, but looking like what's happening here on my reserve or 25 years of the same church coming back and doing a summer kids program. And um, the kids here on my community look forward to it. And the teenagers and young adults now have connections with this church in Illinois. And, and so when I'm speaking with people about short-term um, I asked them at church to consider investing over and over again. Mm-hmm. So it's not just a one-time drop-in situation. Mm-hmm. At the same time um, that there are some negative aspects to short-term, I, I do value and see um, that God can use people and situations um, in any way that he wants. I know that when a short-term team came to my community, I... I didn't become a believer to this first um, camp I went to, but I I did have some of my questions answered. And that was some beginning stages for me. And so people need to realize it it can be a long-term journey of um, building relationship because as you build relationship, you earn the right to speak into people's Mm -hmm. lives. Um, You earn you earn that respect and trust and that doesn't happen, um, overnight. Yeah. So when you say, um, long-term relationship, I, this is something I'm, I'm fascinated with because we probably all say it, but I always wonder, gosh, I wonder what people, uh, really mean, <laughs> you know? So from your, from the first nation side or from the hosting side, when you say, um, a long-term partnership, um, you know, what What do you mean by that as far as length of time? Yeah, usually I say five years. Um, I ask churches to consider coming for five years in a row. Um, and 
And so just with that five-year time period, I'm hoping that people are thinking um, over the, that for a lot of people would be the long haul. Mm -hmm. Um, For a family member that became a Christian, um, it was 18 years. And she asked me, she's like, what is, we were at a a Bible study thing that she was in and um, was at a Christian treatment center. And she said to me, she's like, what does intercessory prayer mean? And I said, intercessory prayer is um, somebody praying for somebody else. And I said, like I've been doing for you for 18 years. And um, she replied and she said, I'm sorry, I took so long. Hmm. And so <laughs> some, so sometimes five years is not really long term. Right. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Um, and so you talked also about building relationships. Um, so, uh, what, how can, uh, what does that look like building relationships even beyond? Cause we, we do, even though obviously our ministry SOE were short-term mission focused, but we realized that when we talk about partnership, that's bigger than just the trip. Um, so what does that, how do you build relationships and, and, um, are you, are the partners then are they building relationships with ministries like name like yours? Or are you guys connecting them with um, with local bodies of believers and they're building relationships there? Or maybe you're doing some of both. But but how do you build those relationships? Yeah. Um, so name missionaries are are known in the communities that they're working in and ministering in, and um, name is known. And so that's a good door opener to bringing people into the community. Um, there's other ways of getting into being involved in communities, but um, so that relationship with a missionary that's knowledgeable of the the local people and um, and then is able to connect, make some connections for, say, a short-term trip um, team to be involved and to, to meet people. It's, it's hard to just drop in and make something happen. You kind of need to know people um, as insiders in the community. Mm-hmm. And so um, as we think about even our long-term missionaries um, investing in a community, it, it can take a long time to find those relationships and build those relationships. I know that Don and Mary, when they came to my reserve, um, they were told to get off. Mm. So, yeah, um, that, that can happen. So it's good to have insiders, whether, um, some places do have like a, a functioning, uh, first nations church, um, with believers, believers, others don't. Um, and so it's, when I say building relationship, I often tell people that go and be involved in mm. people's lives, um, do what they're doing. I mean, mm-hmm. To a certain extent, sure. Um, and yeah, as you walk alongside with people in life, then then that's when a relationship happens. Yeah, and so um, it, how have you seen that work um, with missionaries, um, and not just long term ones, but if you've had, like for example, you talked about the group from Illinois that's been coming for twenty five years. What does that look like to kind of walk alongside people in their lives where they're at? Um, have there have you seen creative ways that people have done that to build those relationships to um, to be present with each other? Yeah, um, technology has definitely changed things 
And so there's a lot of connection happening on Facebook on a regular basis. Now there's Zoom Bible studies happening today. Um, we've had a lot of um, interns from the church in Illinois come and spend entire summers out here on the reserve. Um, the church has flown um, people from Mount Curry, young adult uh, teenagers up to their church and had them stay for a couple of weeks. We've had teams come back for like Thanksgiving or after Christmas. And so they're returning on their own at various points in time. Um, and then as the, the, the amount of kids that come is um, probably about 80 kids. And so now we have um, teenagers and young adults from Mount Korea that are actually being like leaders in training from um, and partnering with the church as they do this kids program. Um, so they're, they're working together in mm. that way. That's neat. So um, if, uh, what are some of the things that groups, you kind of answered this with what do they need to, to know uh, to build that partnership? They need to understand the history. They need to kind of understand the values of the people that they're reaching out to. Um, thinking about coming and spending time with people there um, in in your context, in your setting, what types of things might they need to be able to know or just be able to do in a cross-cultural setting in order to build those relationships? Are there um, specific cultural understandings or, um, yeah, that kind of thing. What, what is it they might need to know in order to be able to function and thrive and value others in that setting? Yeah, I mean, First Nations people in North America are very, very diverse um, culturally, linguistically, geographically. And so it's important to study the local First Nations culture and people that you are, are going to be among. Um, when I am looking at, when I'm talking to church pastors or people that want to join Name for Ministry, I'm looking for someone that's willing to be a learner um, because my people have been oppressed for a very long time period. A learner is, is willing to look at my people as, as valuable as, um, and when you have the attitude of a learner, you're willing to um, to step back and, and watch and observe and and engage with people in um, in a way that eliminates yourself in a sense, um, and it is showing that value to other people. As mm -hmm. as I, for me, I faced a lot of racism, and so I have kind of super sensitive sensors to people that are come with an agenda or people that come with an attitude. Um, oftentimes I, I can know what a person is, is going to say or think about me as a people group, like as a First Nations person um, very quickly. And that's because we've had to learn those skills, those nonverbal skills. And so be willing to, to adjust who you are in, in some ways to, um, and to value the other person as, as important. And to a lot of times when I start up a conversation with an, another First Nations person, I'm looking for what is interesting to them. Mm -hmm. I'm looking for a topic or an aspect of their life that they are 
they're proud of, that they value, that they are successful in, and then I allow them to lead the conversation in that area um, about about the topic and let them know that I don't really know and I want to learn. And so as you engage in that conversation in their comfort area, um, you're valuing them as a person and their knowledge. Um, and and so that that's a hard thing to do when we enter into conversations with um, when we, you enter a conversation with a goal, mm. you try and redirect the conversation almost back to what your goal is. And so oftentimes us as evangelical Christians, we have our goal. Um, we have our mindset that we have something to bring, um, which is good. We have Jesus. And we do have something to bring, but we don't have the upper hand all the time. And so we need to remove that mindset from ourselves that we have something to bring. Um, because people will will disregard you if they, they sense you're, you have some kind of agenda that you're going to try and force on them. Yeah, I think that's really well said, um, that to value people is to find something that that they're proud of and something that they value. Uh I think that just as you were talking, I realized that sometimes that runs so contrary to what uh, we're trying to do in partnerships. And that's we're trying to find, you know, some point of need and fill it, you know, or even when I think about, you know, growing up, at least for me and my religious context, we learned the four spiritual laws, you know, for the gospel. And, uh, you know, that kind of starts with where where you're broken, where you're wrong. <laughs> and, and sometimes that's a really hard starting place, you know, to come in and try to, to tell somebody, Hey, you're broken and you need fixing. Well, like you said, when there's not a relationship there, um, th- but that's a tough sell. So yeah. Excellent. So, um, tell us a little bit about, um, how, uh, about name about North American indigenous ministries. Uh, in general, what what do they do? Tell us a little bit about your role and and uh, how you minister in your community. Yeah, so NAME started out as a medical boat ministry up the coast of British Columbia over 70 years ago. And now we have staff in um, Western Canada, so BC, Alberta, and Saskatchewan, and then also in the U.S. in Montana, Washington, and New Mexico. And so there is a a vast diversity of ministry that is happening, whether it's children, youth, women, um, prison ministry. Um, Some of our communities have church that meets on Sunday. Some like the ministry that my husband and I are involved in here is just it's meeting people and, and trying to meet people and to try and be a part of people's lives. And so, Um, That might mean making a load of firewood with a person. Um, It might mean driving people somewhere if they need a ride. And so the goal as you're doing those things with people is that that's when you get to have conversation. Um, Because if you try and just sit across the table, most people get nervous and uncomfortable or they may keep it um, lighthearted and superficial and so that working alongside or walking alongside, um, I think, opens the door to a, a deep, an entry into a deeper conversation. Yeah. And then I think you said you do some administrative and recruitment work um, 
And so recruiting in what way? Yeah, I'm looking for people that are interested in First Nations ministry. Um, And so a lot of what I'm doing is connecting people. So um, whether it's an internship or um, a summer placement, short-term missions trip between a church um, or long-term, I'm trying to connect people with our local staff that then can be the, the more direct partnership. So in that sense, I, I, I see myself as more an administrator. Um, I do some of the screening process and the application process that people, when people want to join our organization, whether it's for a six, six month, six week, one year internship, all the way up to full time staffing. Um, I do that entire process. And then I'm also doing the training, um, some of our short term placements, and then all of our long term staff, I complete the training process. Um, I do a lot of cross-cultural teaching um, in schools and Bible colleges at conferences on on how to minister among my people. Excellent. So if anybody, somebody wanted to get a hold of you or get a hold of name, uh, how would they do that? Yeah, our website is naim.ca. And my email is on the website, or you can email me, T-E-M-E-R-A at N-A-I-M dot C-A. Cool. And we'll put your email address in the, um, in the show notes because we want to uh, make your ministry available to people. As, if there are listeners out there saying, you know, we wanted to build that relationship or we need to learn, we need some of this cross-cultural help to figure out what does it look like, the partner we want to make sure that to make you available. So... Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing about yourself as well as your ministry and what it looks like uh, to do ministry in uh, First Nations peoples. Cool. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Better Mission Trips podcast from Standards of Excellence and Short-Term Mission, or SOE for short. For more information or resources about how to make your mission trips better, or even to become a member of SOE, visit us at our website, soe.org. And a special thank you to Melissa White for producing this episode.